G'day, g'day, guys. Now, before we dive into today's show, I want to ask you a few quick questions. Are you looking to take your investing career to the next level? Are you wanting an accountability partner who will push you to achieve your goals? Are you needing to surround yourself with successful investors and entrepreneurs in order to up your game and take control of your life? Well, if you've answered yes to any of those questions, I am super pumped and excited to announce that I'm starting the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. This mastermind is a group of highly motivated, abundance-orientated, hand-selected hustlers and entrepreneurs who are ready to take that next step in their investing career. We are now taking applications for the next group of champions. If you're interested to find out more, then email me at info, that's I-N-F-O, at reedgoosens.com and put in the subject line, The Syndicator Incubator. Being a part of this mastermind group, you will have unlimited access to both myself and my business partner, Andrew Campbell, and you will understand how we have been able to build a portfolio of over 1,200 units worth over $120 million in under 24 months, and we've achieved financial freedom in the process. There are once a month mastermind calls with the group and a yearly conference where you will learn from the best in the business. So what are you waiting for? There are only limited spots, so get your application pack by emailing me at info at And remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. For me, I break down revenue into two, three categories. I break it on up into wealth, income, and scale. Those three categories are very different. Wealth comes from owning the systems. Scale comes from using systems to deploy. And income comes from anything that is human, people generated, like once again, services. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast. From Los Angeles, I'm your host, Reid Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow, and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show.
Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with AJ Osborne. AJ started in the real estate industry as a broker and he spent 15 years in that role before discovering a passion for investing in commercial real estate. After he completed his very first self-storage deal, he realized the value of cash flow and passive income. AJ is also the host of the Cash Flow to Freedom podcast, podcast I should say, uh, which focuses on how to grow wealth and overcome financial instability while working in a way that benefits you and your family, both financially and personally. I'm really excited and pumped to have him on the show and to share his incredible experience and knowledge. But enough out of me, let's get him out here. G'day, AJ. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Hey, man. My pleasure. First question I ask all my guests, rewind the clock. And tell me how you made your first dollar as a kid. Oh, that's easy. Working on a farm. You, 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 you grew up on a farm? Whereabouts? I didn't grow up on a farm, but my family, they're all farmers. And so uh, I, I grew up working on my grandpa and uh, uncles and aunts farmers. They were dairy farmers and alfalfa and potatoes and everything else and horse breeders. And so I spent my, my summers there working, working on the farms. Nice, man. What type of horses? I, I used to also ride horses back in the day and do my fair bit of farm work as well. Nice. Mostly quarter horses. Got it. Got it. Different. I was into show jumping, but uh, I'm sure we could talk about that for, on a completely different podcast <laughs> and do it down a completely different rabbit hole. But mate, how did you get into the, into the world of real estate investing? And maybe tell us a little bit about the path and the journey into entrepreneurship. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think my path into real estate is unconventional, but at the same time, the exact same as everyone else's, right? The, what drove me to it is the same thing that I feel most people are driven towards. I, I worked in the health insurance industry before. I, I still do. I own a health insurance brokerage company. Um, but I was introduced into insurance right out of the gate because my dad worked in insurance. And he sold insurance and he had an insurance firm and I joined and I sold insurance. So that's what I did. I was an insurance sales guy. And um, I liked that because I was in control over my income, right? And so I was immediately introduced into you either make money or you don't eat. And it was up to me. So I decided how much money I wanted to make, right? Or I, I didn't make it. I had to go figure something else out to do. And because I was pretty much immediately introduced to that, I didn't originally, I, I started working for a big uh, national company, Aflac, the one with the duck. And then I worked for a couple of brokerage firms. And then I moved back to where I live in Boise, Idaho, started working here. And I really did love this idea that I'm in control of my revenue. I love this idea that I have the ability to better my future. Now, at the time, it was great. There were some real fundamental flaws, though, with it that I, I didn't see. And uh, I, I felt that, wow, I've got my own block of business. I'm running my own revenue, employees, and this is the American dream, right? This is freedom. This is what it's all about. Um, and I, I was misled. I, it, it wasn't. And the reason it wasn't was I was still working for an income. Now, although it was a different type because it was commissions and I could earn as much as I wanted to theoretically, which also wasn't true. That was another lie I told myself because I ran out of time, right? And so I, I was on a massive treadmill running. Every time I had uh, lost a client, I had to replace the income. And the only difference between my treadmill and maybe somebody else's that had a normal W2 job was I could control the speed. But the moment the treadmill stopped, it ended. 
right? Mm -hmm. And I learned that fairly quickly. I, we, I was trying to do an acquisition with another company because um, I thought I need to change this. And my first initial idea was I'll just go buy other companies. And that started out good. We would do some acquisitions, but we did an acquisition that reshaped the way that I thought about revenue, that reshaped the way that I thought about how income is created. And it's because the guy screwed us. So we bought the, the, the firm and then he had his wife go take the clients out uh, from underneath the company we just bought. And the clients all left. And there was nothing in the contract that didn't allow his wife to go do this. And it ended up in a lawsuit. It was horrible. It was millions were on the line and it was devastating, obviously for so long. It went on for like a year. And I learned all of a sudden, I can't do anything about this. I can't stop these people from leaving and this revenue from going away. And I realized I don't have any assets here, right? It's just clients that say they're gonna pay me and that's month to month and I have to go get new ones. And the people that are selling for me, if they leave, everything's gone. I don't own anything. So I own nothing to hold that revenue to me. And that was massively eye-opening. And I learned something that I'll never forget. I was rich, I was not wealthy. And the difference between that could not be greater. Rich just meant I made a lot of money when being wealthy meant I didn't have to work for money. And so I needed to redefine my goals, where I was going and how to create them. Now, at the same time, I needed to um, redefine how to get to my goals, right? I had to learn all sorts of new stuff. We had to change. There was massive risk and everything that was going on with this. But I knew that it, we had to make a change. My core competencies were obviously in business. It was running things efficiently. It was managing capital, capital allocation, um, risk, that kind of stuff. So when looking at real estate, I found an asset class that I thought we could go in, which for us, it wasn't a real estate asset class. And that's self-storage. And we didn't believe self-storage was a real estate asset. It was a business. You have employees, you're selling products. It acts like a retail center, right? And there's month to month contracts. You're not tied up in long leases. And so you're just selling different types of products, insurance, boxes, locks, on and on and on, moving trucks. So all these people that own these, they think that they own real estate. And we said, no, you own a business. And since you're not doing a good job, we would buy it, we'd turn it around and we'd increase the uh, revenue and uh, obviously prop up the valuations massively. And that was the underlying thesis. And we, we went in and we basically created a franchise model, bought underperforming assets. We did a value add strategy. We turned them around, we focused on revenue and it worked really, really well. And we did this for um, about four years. And I was working, so I'm like working two jobs. We're building up this business. Uh, and uh, then I uh, became paralyzed. It was funny, actually, right after the first quarter, I think it was the first quarter we became profitable because we built out a management company to run these assets. So we built up like this. Our, our management company was very uniquely designed to try to extract value from these underperforming assets. We knew exactly the model. It looked like a franchise cookie cutter. We'd come in, we'd identify the assets that we could make the biggest impact on the revenue and we'd turn them around. But building this company to extract this value out of these assets is expensive. Um, you know, it, right now on an annual base, we 
our management company alone, we spent over $800,000 on. So for the first long time, that it, we didn't make money, right? Money. We were pouring everything back into buying more assets. And two, we were pouring personal income and everything else back into the management and hiring people to turn these around. So it was a whirlwind. And at the same time, I was running the state's largest brokerage firm, a health brokerage firm, and doing medical. So it was a crazy, crazy, crazy ride. Um, and then it all came crashing down, so to speak. Um, and it, it happened right as, you know, time, I was at the top. I was the best time of my life, right? I just created this huge company. We had like a hundred million in assets. I was running our state's largest brokerage firm. We were doing great. We were traveling. Um, and then out of nowhere, um, I, I became paralyzed. And, uh, not only did I become paralyzed, uh, within days, um, I was put in due to induced medical coma and then put onto life support. And I sat in a bed paralyzed from head to toe on life support, um, for months and hooked to tubes. And wow. so it, um, really changed the world quickly. And the reason why I think this is, was so impactful and important was I'd lost my ability to earn income. The thing that I loved when I started out, right? The, the very thing that I loved, the sales that I could go run around and stay busy, that all went away. And um, I no longer could operate and run these, this large brokerage firm, state's largest brokerage firm, obviously, yep. At a hospital. We didn't know if I was ever even going to move again. For a while, we didn't know if I was even going to live for a long time. So after that all happened, I'm in a wheelchair and I, I, I went home. After a few months, they went home, but I was still paralyzed. So I was in a bed and my mom was there. My wife was taking care of me and, and she was taking care of our four children too. We just had our fourth. And uh, we, you know, I'm lying there in bed and I, I didn't know what my future was going to be like, but I, I had passive income coming. So it really didn't matter. Um, I diversified into real estate. Now I lost a huge percentage of income, but I didn't have to worry about defaulting on my house. Right. I didn't have to worry about my wife not knowing what to do with the kids and her now paralyzed in bed husband, um, and figuring out what to do. And that, you know, was obviously changed everything. And it changed the way that I could heal and become better, which I, um, actually rapidly got better. It's been two years. I, I still am partially paralyzed. I have leg braces on, but I can walk now. And um, it, that, that is a type of freedom that can't be described. Um, and this ability to project out my revenue and to invest in allocate capital at a known return though, I didn't go away. So I could still go find deals, even if I was paralyzed to my chair. I could still go underwrite, I could still purchase them and have the management team turn, turn them around because that's not dependent on necessarily my work. Now, obviously, if I was lying still in a bed hooked to tubes, um, that wouldn't work. But I could even halfway recover, I could still do what I was doing, which I couldn't have done that in my other job and virtually anything else. So my that real estate gave me not only financial freedom, but it really gave what I believe to be unlimited upside potential. And that's obviously regardless of the asset class, so storage or anything else, but it allowed me to not only have unlimited upside potential, but project it in a way that you, I couldn't with other businesses because that revenue is unsecured. So it allows this compounding effect to the future. While I was in the hospital, when I was paralyzed, when I got out, 
I, our assets were worth more and they made more money than when I went in. And so it, it didn't matter. You're right. My, my real estate assets, they didn't, they didn't care that I was there working on the grounds. It just doesn't matter. And that's, you know, I became really passionate after that, that you have to separate your time and income. Mm. Now, obviously mine's an extreme example, but it, let's take it. All of us at some point cannot work for an income, right? right. That's eventually retirement, whatever it is. Um, and then for a lot larger portion of us, we want to stop working for an income. Right. right. We want to separate our time from our money. We want that freedom to explore. And it's not that, you know, I, I ever want to stop working because I, I didn't. I mean, after I got out of the hospital, I started two more companies up and uh, doing a lot more acquisitions. And in fact, I'm doing more than I ever did before because I, I love doing, I love working, I love building. Um, that's just fun for me. And really when I lost my big corporate job, you know, that allowed freedoms for me to explore other avenues of entrepreneurship and investing um, that will have much larger and have had much bigger impact on my life that I ever could. I mean, it was economically and too, I think emotionally and you're, you feel stuck, right? Mm. Where this other avenue that people need to explore through entrepreneurship and business, it, it's not just an economic freedom. It's also almost like a mental freedom sure. that allows you to progress in a way that is deemed up to you without anyone holding you back. It's just up to your merits and what you can do for others. And I love that. Mate, wow. <laughs> what can I say? I, that, that's a huge introduction. Um, coming all the way through, like I, I, I literally was writing down, like my whole notepad here is just written down with a bunch of stuff and, and, you, you said some really interesting stuff at the beginning of, of what you're talking clients versus assets, services versus assets and getting out of the, getting out of your own way. Um, but I, I clearly want to dive into the, your, your disability and, and, and what, how that has changed you mentally. And obviously there's the real estate investing side and that's, that's the well and good part of it. But just, let's, 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 let's address the elephant in the room right now. Like, how did you go, mate? Like coming out of the hospital might have been, it must have been huge to hear that you may never walk again. Like that's sending tingles down my spine. Like surely you would have had days where there were demons mentally that you couldn't escape. Um, you know, for a long time, I would, I didn't know whether I would either live. So I just right. wake up, but I wasn't sure if I was alive or not. Um, I couldn't speak um, for six plus weeks. Wow. Um, so I couldn't communicate. Um, I had tubes coming. Uh, they cut me open on the throat and uh, trached me. And uh, my lungs didn't work for me to be able to speak. Um, so I couldn't communicate. And I, I think the hardest thing about it was the pain. Mm. So I was, a lot of people thought, oh, if you're paralyzed, you can't feel anything. Mm. Oh, I wish that was true. No, it was the opposite. Every single one of my nerves was telling my brain that I had basically been blown up, that I was wow burned. My bones were shattered and shredded to bits. Um, so it was, I didn't sleep for probably two months, more than like an hour. Um, and it was just constant terror. Every time you woke up, it was, you woke up, you're dying to try to sleep, but you immediately woke up because pain just strikes you open and they were pumping as much meds as they could at me. And it, it mm. just, it almost didn't make a dent. And most of the time I would just lie in agony and sweat until I passed out. Um, so this went on for a long time. And, uh, um, 
Yeah, I guess that does have a, some re residual effects. Uh, for sure. Right? <laughs> it changes your outlook. Um, when, you know, my eyes were partially paralyzed too for a long time. So I couldn't see who was coming in and out of the room. Um, you'd have to get kind of close for me to be able to see you. So they, they come in and we spent a while before we allowed my children to see me because we were scared of mm -hmm. damaging their psyche, seeing their dad hooked up to tubes like I, like I was. But after a while it became, they're like, we don't know if this is changing. Mm -hmm. it, then it started to get into situations like you may have to decide to pull the plug. And wow. that all of a sudden changes. Got to bring the kids in. We got to show them dad. We got to tell them what's going on, whether it, you know, whether it traumatizes them or not, that, that's besides the point now. Um, and it, luckily for me though, I had my, my, my baby who was just born yep. three months and uh, yeah, they'd take him and they'd lie him next to my pillow. They'd put him on the pillow next to my head, right? Mm -hmm. So I could just lean over and move my lips and my mouth and he would play with my mouth. And that's how I interacted. That's how I played with my, my right. kids. And uh, they, he didn't care that dad was paralyzed in bed. He didn't know. He just liked <laughs> being there playing with me. Um, so I, you know, it changed your value set. And it, it changed the way that the first time, the first time that I was able to drink water is literally undescribable. I mean, I really, I can't even like, yeah. they put it up to my lips and I got to fill the water, you know, just, it was incredible. And then my first time of being able to move my hands. And when I saw, you know, my feet move for the first time, which was, you know, well over a year and a half after um, just to even budge. And little things all of a sudden just became huge every day, right? Every day. We, we, you know, it's just so funny looking back at the videos and whatnot. They were helping me eat and they'd hold my hands and I'd be shaking because I lost all my muscles. I lost 70 pounds. Um, and they would get it up to my, my mouth so I could eat and I would take a bite and then I would swallow the food and everybody would cheer because I swallowed <laughs> food, right? I was like a two year old again. And, uh, it was, um, so it, it was like, I started all over again. I joke my, my son the other day asked me why I had three belly buttons. And I was like, well, the bottom belly buttons for the first time that I needed food and food and air. And then my other two belly buttons are for the second time that I had to be reborn and needed food and air. And it, it, it was a huge blessing from the standpoint of, I don't think you can kind of have a mental shift like that unless you go through it. No. And it just, everything got put into perspective really, really quickly. I, um, <laughs> that's, that's saying that, that is saying that lightly, mate. Like yeah. you're literally yeah. being reborn and add on the top of that, there's a difference between being reborn and the fact that you could never walk again. Like that's, yeah. that's like, that's too different things. Like there's, yeah. okay, there's, there's a stroke and, but, but you have, you know, there's, I, I'm just blown away, mate. Like I'm, I'm true. Like I can't even imagine. Uh, I've gone through some personal stuff myself with the people dying, but just the the emotional roller coaster you and your family went through, clearly for an extended period of time, where you you don't know if we have to just turn off life support and, and bring the kids in, and and then you know it would have just. I'm, I'm I'm sort of welling up right now hearing your story because it's so emotive. Like I I I can't sympathise with it because I just don't know, but I could only imagine how hard it's been for you to get back to where you are now, regardless of the businesses. Like we haven't even got into that yet. You know, like yeah. it's, it's such a, I hope you write a book one day, mate, because I'd love to read it because it's such a, it's such a story of resilience and not giving up. And, and so from a medical point of view, obviously you've regained what 90% of your function. I can see you on camera. And if, you know, yeah. 
Yeah, I have leg braces, but I'm not in my wheelchair. I'm not in. Um, so I, I still have to take a lot of medicines to uh, manage pain okay. uh, because my, my nervous system is, is still working. But I'm walking and right. I eat on my own and I can go to work and I run around. Well, okay, I don't run, but I walk around and I, you know, I have fun and I have lots of fun and I, I enjoy every second of my life and I fully expect to one day run. Um, and I have been tremendously lucky and blessed. I, yeah. For a long time, it, you, you get tired of every time you ask, am I going to walk again? Then looking at you and saying, we don't know. And that's never fun to hear. Yeah. Was that, was that from a medical point of view? And we don't have to go deep into that, but yeah. it was just an unknown because I guess the spinal cord is so, they just don't know how it can react right to certain medicines and certain. So what happened? What happened? No. Yeah. It, it, I don't know if any of you I'd never heard of it. It was called Guillain-Barre. No idea what that meant. I'm sitting in, I'm sitting in the hospital, right? And I'm, I'm in a little room and the doctors are like, we don't know what's wrong with you because you're perfectly healthy, except for the fact that I could walk four hours ago and now I can't. And uh, it was, they finally figured out that it was something called Guillain-Barre. And that's when your white blood cells are produced to attack like anything, a virus or, you know, whatever. And my white blood cells were produced and they kept mass overproducing. And for some reason, this happens like one in a million or two million, they decided that my nervous system was a threat. And hmm. my body started attacking my own nervous system, which then basically wow. severed the ability for my brain to communicate with my body. And so there was nothing they could give me to make it better. They just, they hook you up to tubes and wait for your body to try to rebuild. So it wasn't, it wasn't even an accident. It was just sheer luck. I was having a blast. I was in California. I was at a PGA tour, just having a great time and came home. And one day my leg and the next day my legs were sore and they hurt. And I started not feeling right. And then two days later, out of, I mean, out of the blue, my kids were asleep. My wife rushed me to the hospital. The next time I saw my kids, I was paralyzed from head wow. to toe. And wow. it was, and it had been like a month. So they, they like my kids were like, "Good night, Dad. We love you." And yeah. then a month later, they see me again, and I'm hooked to tubes. Wow. So it was it was very much out of the blue. And and the 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 medical chances of this, what you're saying, one what was it, one in a million, like a one in a, yeah, yeah, it's like one in a, in a. So I think it's like one in a million to get it. But some people, a lot of people, will get this type of thing, but it's not as they they don't get put on life support, so it's not as extreme. So for those that get get it and end up like I, I did. It's yeah, it's like one in 2 million or something crazy like that. And so do they end up figuring out is just the body recovering over time or was there a certain medicine that they gave you to, to stop those? What? So just nothing they can do. It's just literally, hopefully your body takes care of itself. Wow. Um, okay. So, so it was, a, it's a self re repair. Yeah, you, self -repair. Got you, got, your body got you into this state. Your body's going to get you out of it somehow. We, yep. we'll, we'll hook you up on the job. Their job was, as they put it, to not let you die until your body can try to get it to live on its own. And That's so, I, yeah, so my, my, uh, what they were giving me, the medicine they were giving me was simply to handle like pain. Right. To, probably all sorts of other stuff because I had tubes coming in and out of me, but it was nothing to help what had happened. There's nothing they could do for that. I, I want to shift gears a little bit. I, I, I know it's, it's a really, I know, I know I will be respectful of your time. I could literally talk to you about this for, for hours. Um, but I do want to be respectful of your time. 
um, I want to get into a little bit of what you said earlier, which, which was about having a service-based business versus having an asset and how you realize it smacked you in the face with this disease that you had that, and, and, and the lawsuit that you had early on that you might have bought this business, but it can literally be sucked away from you if, you, if it's serviced or maybe potentially client-based business and you've got to keep you, 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 the treadmill analogy. I, I use the other analogy of you eat what you kill. Like you got to keep you got to yep. keep out getting hunting, you know, because otherwise you're not gonna you're not gonna eat. Um, and it's that conveyor belt, and then all of a sudden you realize the assets. So in your business today, I know you, you mentioned about the the, the, the underperforming uh, self storage. I want to get into that in a minute. But from from the the high level point of view of, can you explain to the to the listeners? why the service-based business is just so it's limiting in terms of how far it can take you. As you said, you're, you're rich, but you're not wealthy. You know, I look at it, you know, when, when you're providing services to, there's a difference between owning infrastructure that provides services and providing the services through transactions. So in, uh, for me, I break down revenue into two, three categories. I break it on up into wealth, income, and scale. Those three categories are very different. Wealth comes from owning the systems. Scale comes from using systems to deploy. And income comes from anything that is human, people, generated. Like, once again, services. I, I own, you know, I owned a brokerage firm and then because the brokers worked for me and made money um i felt that that was you know wealth and a lot of people how they get away from that or most businesses as they grow how they depart from that and they secure wealth is they go public mm. and then when they go public they turn into a publicly traded stock and then they are infrastructure now they are an investment vehicle and then those people own the shares of the company which then always produce money for them and the shareholders there in return, right? So the problem well, is- Hold on, if, just, just yeah. on, that, on that thought, because that's, that's quite interesting. You, you, you mentioned three things, wealth, scale, and income. You, your wealth is owned, the, the system's scale is using, and then income is uh, client-facing, service-based stuff. Mm-hmm. But, if, but what, why is it that, if, so to, to go to an IPO, how does that transition to you into infrastructure, but, but, but you know, compared to just a small business like an insurance business like yourself? Like, how, what what does an IPO magically the ferry comes along and you you now a wealth generating thing where you're still providing you're still doing the same essential business at the end of the day? It's just now you're in the stock market. What well, maybe explain so, that a little bit because that that, that might have confused some people. Yeah, I look at it very simply as there's a difference between being a shareholder, mm-hmm. right? and a or worker or even owning in a private business. The reason being is first of all, you've detached yourself from risk. So liability speaking, you literally own a piece of the company, but there's, there's no blowback on you, right? So nothing you can do. Plus you get paid dividends from all assets and all everything that is created within that company, but that company can magically grow just by sentiment and just market upswing and all sorts of stuff. And that's detached away from you. So it's that separation of time, liability, and everything in income. 
I'm interrupting this episode to remind you guys about the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. If you want to take your investing career to the next level and surround yourself with the best in the business, then apply today. Spots are filling up fast. I'm only taking a handful of people for the next round, so get your application by emailing me at info, I-N-F-O, at reedgoosens.com. Remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. Now, back into the show. So the, 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 by doing the IPO, you've just created equity in the company and those publicly traded stocks could fluctuate the value of the company reg- kind of regardless of how well you're using your systems in the wealth and the scale points that you made before in interfacing with that income-based service, whatever, you know, widget, yeah. whatever it might be. So you're, because that is then propping the, the value of the company up, which means you could then go lend against that and grow systems within the business to then become better interface with your income, right? I'm just trying to exactly. No, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think of like, if you think of income, let's say you have a service-based business. If you think of scale, think of an online business, right? Online businesses are simply using the internet and code to distribute value in some way, shape or form. And they can do it at mass levels because of the connectivity of the uh, model that they're using, right? right. Wealth means you it's it's a functionality of growing and uh, without even being attached to you at all so you can you could turn the key is turning income and scale either way into wealth that's the end goal right, right? right, right. and that that's that separation so either model has to go up to wealth and that's what everyone's trying to do whether that income is you individually as a W-2 or a 1099 or a business owner, whether that scale portion is you having an online company or a blog, whatever it is, right, that you're doing, you're trying to get a mode to wealth. And most people, the, the big time wealth that people imagine is that version when those businesses turn, go into IPOs and they become on the New York Stock Exchange. Or for me, it was to create an asset or an investment vehicle that acted as a wealth vehicle. And real estate is the prime example. Of course, there's other things like oil and different things like that, right? So it can be an array of it, but the point is the separation from time. And since I didn't think I was gonna take my uh, business IPO'd anytime soon, and there was so much risk and work uh, effectively tied to that, and to get it to a point I felt that I was out of control with that. I, I felt like I didn't have control where with real estate, it's easy. Mm. It's numbers, right? Could, I could can start ever, small and I can grow. Could you have ever turned that insurance company into a wealth generation or not? Was it always? Yes. You, no, yes, absolutely. So take, take the IPO off the table, for example. We're not going to yeah. go IPO route. Was there any way or vision or journey to get the, 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 the service-based company to a wealth generating company, not just- That's why I was acquiring businesses. It Got was it. for that purpose. Got so it. I was on that road to acquiring companies and taking them in. And then we got in the, pro- and then you get into the problem. So for example, perfect exa- example, I didn't have investors. So when I do an acquisition, it's millions. First of all, I'm constrained about how, on how much I can grow because of the lending practices and everything else. Two, the risk is disproportionate to the reward because the risk of acquiring that one could take down the other. So we looked at all sorts of different models. We could combine with a uh, venture capitalist company. We could sell off private shares to other people to gain money, then to do, go out and do the acquisition. But if I'm selling off my company, my equity in that company to raise funds, 
to go out and then buy other companies whose risk of them leaving is really great and I have very little control of that. If they leave, that means I just now own less of what I originally had. Right, right, right. right. And so, so you're, just yeah. sorry to jump in there, your, your, yeah. scale, your wealth creation was going out in the insurance example, insurance-based business example, was to buy other operating businesses to then create a network of business and that was then the infrastructure. Is that correct? Yes, that was the goal. Yeah, that's a goal. So that, that's how you've taken it from. I'm just trying to cut, break yes. it down for the people listening. You've taken it from, a, from, from an income to a scale. You've then gone out and acquired more businesses to create an infrastructure, which then hence creates wealth. Correct. And, right. and let me put it in an easy way to look at this too, is I thought, well, there's an easy way to get around this because I can buy businesses that can't leave me. So now I don't worry about lending. Now I don't worry about, even if I needed to go raise money or do partnerships or whatever, I don't worry about that revenue being lost. I don't worry about it going away. So that's way easier than trying to do it the other route. And so real estate all of a sudden provided that wealth problem, right? And it, it it's provided already baked it so in, right? It's already, it's already, the, exactly. the wealth is already baked in, yeah. Exactly. And then two, when you do a value add or a value creation strategy, and like we focused on revenue management as opposed to cap rates and different other real estate normal things, where we would work, uh, look at core business practices and driving revenue, uh, it, it's like putting steroids to wealth creation. Mm. And uh, um, it can really work quickly. And then you can compound out in ways that I just couldn't in other lines of business. Now, Granted, other businesses have scale that is much harder to achieve in real estate, right? right. But the right. risk is disproportionate to the two. So give us some examples of some of those. And, and, and thank you, by the way, because it's, it's really good. I haven't had anyone on the show, you know, I've been doing this for four years, really break down that difference between, and I love how you did wealth, scale, and income, because it is a service versus asset base. And I really want to get some clarity around that for the listeners. I think it's really valuable. So talk, let's talk about the revenue generation and what you were doing in whilst buying that. You, you, you've got the intrinsic wealth in there in the real estate business because it's a physical piece of dirt, but the revenue side of it was where your scale and your income come in. What were you doing to, to differentiate yourself from the previous owner that would then like literally magnify that wealth 10x or you know whatever x it was? Yeah, so we look at discrepancies. So I, I own several companies. Um, one of the companies that I own, I actually started to own another brokerage firm, right? That's purely income, right? That's generated. I have producers, things like that. Then I have my, all my wealth is tied up in our hundred million in assets. And then I have um, others that are dependent on exterior systems to deploy value, which are everything from, you know, Amazon companies to um, new uh, uh, supplement companies and also SaaS products that are software system companies. So those are how those three things are broken up. And on the real estate side, we employed what we used on the other two, two sides into that. So I would go and find an owner who wasn't managing every little, even little things. They weren't managing their rates correctly. They, were, they weren't managing their, there was no marketing. Um, they were just trying to fill up and walk away. Where we, we focused on revenue management and through revenue management, we focused on more like the airlines do, um, and hotel sectors have gotten really, really good at this, where their prices aren't set. Like we don't say, oh, your, your 10 by 10 is X price, right? The pricing depends on lots of different factors. So we can maximize uh, the revenue of all these different units. So if I buy a unit with 100 10 by 10s, 
all those 10 by 10s are different, a different price. So if somebody came and asked what a 10 by 10 is worth, it'll be a different price than let's say the person before, right? This right. is dynamic pricing. Right, right, so right. This is not static pricing. Revenue. And dynamic, yeah, revenue management through this dynamic pricing and self-storage was a relatively new thing when we started out. The, the big boys who had really dove far into this were like extra space. On top of that, we would sell insurance in it. We would also sell boxes and we do moving things and we do all these ancillary lines. Well, that's 6%. So we, we have these ancillary lines of revenue that are absent our tenant base. And then we could increase the per square foot revenue of the storage facilities. Sometimes we doubled it in six months. And so we were purchasing assets at six, let's call it a six cap, right? Mm -hmm. But we would increase the revenue 35% in six months and increase the occupancy at the same rate that whatever six caps now 15 cap. Right. And once we get a 6% increase on our ancillary products and revenues that we're bringing into that business, 6% 6 on $100,000 a year at a six cap, that's huge. I don't know what, you can't think off the top of my head, but what, 800,000? I mean, that's, that's a big number. And uh, we could take these overlooked strategies and then we could implement them. And two, there's uh, also other things like collections and, and how people weren't uh, not only collecting the revenue, but they weren't tracking it on different units that weren't put to auction. And there's these, these more minute things that added up to being, I, you know, I looked at it and said, you're leaving, you're leaving revenue on the table. Like it's just sitting there. You're just for some reason not collecting it. Well, the revenue sitting on table, that could equate to like 5% occupancy in the average facility that we bought. So all of a sudden, if I can increase 6%, and this is just sidelines, 6% and then 5% on what's currently doing, not changing rates. We're not doing dynamic pricing. We're not you know, doing this revenue management. We're not finding the spread between you and your competitors. And then two, we're not fragmenting the market. So we fragment customers into three different categories. We take the highest ones because we know that X customer will pay a dollar a square foot a month as opposed to the bottom ones that'll pay 40 cents a square foot a month and give those to our, our, our competitors. We weren't doing any of those high-end type of things. And immediately you have 11% increase on gross income. Um, those were just automatic switches. And then we would turn and we would do more of our tenant um, selection period. So uh, we look at tenants, you have tenants that are focused purely on price, you have ones that are location, then you have quality and location, and the price per square foot, each one of those are willing to pay are different. So those top end clients, we could use marketing tactics to identify that those are the people that own their own homes, they have at least three bedrooms, their families, they visited X sites, and we know that their incomes are above a certain level. So I'll pay, let's say, six bucks to acquire that one, and then the ones that are on the lower end, let's say that are only uh, that only care about price, I'll make sure that I'm invisible to them and have them go to the competitors. Therefore, I'm attracting a spread in my marketing for the customers that I get versus my competitors, and I just pay a little more to capitalize on those higher end tenants or potential tenants at the time, I close them. And then the spread in revenue that I'm doing in the exact same actions to get the, so the client, I'm just choosing the better one is a, you know, revenue speaking can be 30, 40 plus percent. Mate, I, the big question that I have for you after listening to you just break that down and, and it was really, thank you for that. And, and I'm an operator, right? I, I, I operate deals, but I'm not, I don't, 
have property management in-house yet. Um, and and, I, and I'm an engineer. My background is instructional engineering. I always want to take take things apart and put it back together again. But I've always known the value, the true value of wealth is in building business system, uh, building business ecosystems, which one feeds right. off the other. And that is, you know, I talk a lot about on this show about business ecosystems and the value of that. At what point do you, because the other dichotomy that I face with is, oh, do I want to leave some stuff on the, you know, leave profits on the table to free up my time to be able to go and travel a little bit more or do something else? Do, do you ever struggle with that? Well, you know, Saying I could, yes, I can touch that, but sometimes I just need to leave that alone because I don't need to want to go build out the whole mouse trap to to figure it out and and and, and, and implement it in my business in order to save that couple of couple of percent. What are we, what are your thoughts on that? So uh, you ask great questions. You're getting me all excited. So um, basically, I look at it like this: there are things in my organizations that are low impact versus high impact tasks. High impact tasks take low amount of time, but they have massive consequences. If I can concentrate my actions to do high impact tasks and I can hire or I can farm out low impact or mid-level tasks, then my time is separated, not only separated, but my time and my return on the time is just exploded. It's massively exaggerated. So I create structures that allow this value to be extracted from assets when I just need to identify the value and then my team goes in to extract. So I can spend my time identifying, they spend the time extracting. And then I build business systems and models that can run without me doing the day-to-day or any of those things. So as long as I can do that, then I can be extracting value while I'm in Hawaii, right? It doesn't matter. So it's not that I'm not even just, it's not that it's passive income, but it can still grow because my revenue pays me it, it pays all the expenses, it pays me, and then it pays a profit, which can be allocated at a known rate of return, which creates a compounding effect without me being within my business to do it. Yep. And that's really everything I've ever focused on. And that's that was the system that I wanted to build. And then you can dive even deeper oh, if you yeah. want to go into to the <laughs> income cross models with taxes and how you how you utilize one that we use off the wealth to the income and the scale strategy, which gets us at a zero tax rate which causes my returns on my capital to be 30% higher than normal, which once again, cuts off years when you're compounding it out. And I use that to, to do different business models, everything from the insurance selling companies to the scaling. So. I No, I, look, I'm, my mind's running right now. Literally before I got on this podcast, my business partner sent me uh, a self-insurance for renters insurance. Right now we, we use our property managers. We don't, we, 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 we farm yeah. it out and, we, and, and, and like, well, hey, we've got this product that we can, as, as Wildhorn, as our own portfolio, we rock, we're the direct reciprocant of it. A reciprocant, <laughs> well, I can't speak, but we benefit from that because we, currently we're just paying for something else, for someone else to profit on. There's other things like trash valet, you know, very small companies that people come and pick up your trash from, from front of the door. Maybe we go, maybe we go build that out. You know, like there's all these things that I want to touch and, and it's, it's so interesting. You get my mind just ticking as well because it's just, there's a rabbit hole that you can go down, but it's understanding what you were saying before about the using the income to get to scale, to get to wealth, and then really truly leveraging whilst you get the, the, the business ecosystems and your business is just like literally skyrocketing. And I could imagine by doing that, you're underwriting deals differently to other people. You're attracting different investors, which have, a reduced risk because you have a, a, a business ecosystem of stuff that supports the table that is buying assets. Um, and so does that give you a competitive advantage when, when you're going out to market and looking at deals? 
So I got a deal that was up for auction. We went to the auction and the auctioneer produced a, um, uh, the, the um, evaluation, I think, what they pin that on? Oh, like 3 million bucks or whatever, right? So this deal went and it was like 3.2. Well, we looked at the appraisal that they provided at the 3.2 million and we said, okay, that's great. That means nothing to us. Right? First of all, cap rates, rates mean nothing. So what we do is we take our models and I know exactly what my model will perform at. I overlaid it. I went over to the bank, got the bank and got an appraiser. And I said, here, give this to your underwriters. Let us walk it through. And here are the comparables. Here's what we do. Our appraisal came in at oh, 6 million. And so based upon that, so we go walk into the auction and there's REITs in there. There's all big players, big, you know, huge players. And they are all sitting ready to bid on a $3.2 million asset that is actually an $8 million asset. So when we picked it up for 3.9 million, um, everybody was like, how'd you come up with those numbers, right? And the problem was, is they were just getting what was accepted which from the marketplace, which means nothing. I don't let bankers tell me how much I can afford and I do not let realtors tell me what something's worth. And so when I came up with my evaluation and did it, we bought it and everybody was puzzling their heads, even the REITs, they're like, how's that even work? Six months later, our average rental in, uh, rent increase for that one location was 76%. Wow. We were five points in occupancy higher eight months later than we were when we bought it. And the average increase was 76%. It's worth something like it was immediately turned around and was worth eight, 9 million within a year. And everybody then of course, after the fact was like, Holy cow, I wish I would have bought that. Like, how, you know, and so understanding how, you derive your value like what are the the value drivers in in and what are the what in those drivers how does that work in not only the localized economy the big economy but within your business model and if you can really understand and manipulate those drivers in that revenue then you can underwrite anything and you basically know the outcome it's it's like being able to predict the future so your risk has gone down astronomically and then you can find the best deals because I don't need a broker to say, oh, hey, I got a good deal. It's a, it's an eight cap. What does that mean? That doesn't mean anything to me. Right, like right. I can go look at deals and I can underwrite 10 and I can tell you exactly what the revenue increase on all 10 deals will be. And then I can pick which one I want to do. And if none of them come in at something that I consider viable, which a minimum of cash on cash, 20% return, I won't do a deal. And then we pick it, take it and run with it. And if not, we don't, we don't need to even worry about it. And are you uh, purely focused in the self storage space? No, we're we're looking at everything from mobile home parks to um, apartments to it, it. It it's not that we're focused on in, in most markets in the United States. And self storage will not ever be returning what they yielded, and most of them will stagnate and even decrease in the next five years. And so underwriting has become difficult in that aspect because we we already know. And so it, we need a pretty good value add strategy, which will never leave self storage, but it means we're going to be very picky. We're doing de developments. We, I, I bought a bankrupt super Kmart and I turned that into a huge storage facility. And we kind of pioneered this model of automation in this 160,000 square foot building. Wow. Where we blew out the walls, 
you could literally drive your cars through it. And there's loading zones and everything. It was really cool. And there was, there's this, this spread in value that the market is not accurately um, placing with these big box stores. So we, we did, they did a whole thing. In fact, uh, the largest producer of storage services in Janus, they, they, they actually built uh, a white paper on our project and and a lot of people are have copied it and used that and we've toured REITs and everyone else through it and we're really big on that if the market's right i'm going and we're looking at several bankrupt sears and things like that which we're going to convert that into self-storage because because there's a spread in value right value is not being being accurately portrayed because the value that it is is nothing in its current state but it's exaggerated when you change the model Right. And that exaggeration is massive. Our, our store, uh, the storage facility that we created, that was the bankrupt super Kmart, we bought for 8 million. We sold the land off for three. We were all in at like 7.8, 7.9 after the build. It does over a hundred thousand dollars a month. And we have offers at over 20, 25 million with, and, and two, we just crossed the earmark. So um, it's, you can really manipulate some of these market inefficiencies if you know what you're looking for. And starting out, we didn't know that. I didn't know. It's not like I was a genius, right? right. Like we had no idea. The only reason we know is because we do. It, right. we, so we started out in small third tier markets and little facilities. We just figured it out, right? We used basic business acumen. We, we figured out what we didn't, I don't allow people to tell me you know, what things are worth and what they're not. And as we came in and we figured out how to increase those revenues and reduce those liabilities, we documented everything. Every time something didn't work, well, let's write a policy and procedure on it. Every time that we did something that did work, we're like, write a policy and procedure on that. And let's remember this. And we created this huge document, right? And we basically built this franchise model to extract value. And that's what I try to do. And I'm okay doing that in mobile home parks and multifamily, it's it's all the same. Extracting value is basically the means to it is different, right? right. And it, but it's, it's the what, same thing. Whatever the widget is you're selling, you're selling storage, exactly. you're selling uh, living spaces. Um, yep. Super, super interesting. And this is all with you doing property management in house, correct? Yeah. So we, in order to extract the value in the way that we wanted to, we we knew we had to do it. We had to. Do um, it. We, could, we could couldn't never. You no. could have done this with a third party and like, hey, no. use my system to do this. You, you whack you over no. the head with my systems. Yeah, got it. Would have never happened. We couldn't have done it. Um, but there, because once again, too, one of the problems we ran into is they're all real estate people and they're like, that's not how it works. Right. And we're like, okay, well, we'll, we'll do it our way. And sure, sure. Mate, super interesting conversation. I, I, I'm getting jitters just talking about you and all this sort of stuff. It's, it sounds like you're a super intelligent, smart guy, you know, let alone all the, the massive life stuff you've gone through. So do want to be really respectful of your time. Uh, at the end of every show, I do like to get uh, the top five investing tips from my guests. Are you ready to get into it? I'm ready. Mate, what is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? I, I'm obsessively compulsively outlining. <laughs> I, I have monthly, quarterly, annual goals. And I, I write them down and I look at every day, my activities and how my activities during the day get me towards my weekly goals and how those weekly goals get me to the monthly goals, the quarterly goals. And if they don't, I just don't do it. It's really, really hard to get me motivated to do things that don't move the needle. Um, so I need, I, you could say that I'm not very good at details either. 
<laughs> Mate, who's, who's been the biggest influence in your career today? I don't know. This may be cliche, but my, my dad, he's my business partner. That's we've fun. been to we've been together forever. I, I just, he's like my best friend. And, um, we just, we really grew really, really well. And it's easy when you're both have the same values. Like it would be really hard for me to team up, you know, with certain people or other people, because like our values and our goals are identical. We're trying to achieve the same thing. So it creates an easy space for us to focus on pure execution. Right. And, um, he, he trusts me, you know, without any problem. So he can go play or I can go and I, we just, there's, there's a hundred percent trust and a hundred percent execution. And that's really, really helped out having awesome. Awesome. Mate, what is the number one tool in your real estate business, whether it be a software tool or it could be a hardware? What, what, what would be that, that tool? Um, so I, I, I have one that may be a little overlooked and may not know. And of course, obviously, if you ask everybody in my organization, they, they'd argue. So I'm going to give you two because one's mine and then another one's like everyone in our organization runs off of. Um, so the one tool that I really like and I like, it's called Trainual. And the reason that I like Trainual is because I do not believe that you can separate your time and income without creating systems to do so. So you need to document and then you also need to be able to transfer that knowledge or that way to get those end results to someone else. And so Trainual we use for our documentation and then we give to other people as we're hiring or bringing on VAs and we can immediately transfer information and we can give them tests and everything that they need to complete so that they can execute in the way that we need it to, which, I mean, we used to have a full-time trainer that would train employees. It was like a two week period of time. Now that onsite training is down to three days, which makes us way more efficient. And two, the people can go back and learn it without having to pull it from somebody else. Because I mean, think about it. If, if you do something good and you want to hire somebody to replace, let's call it those low impact tasks, well, you got to spend time doing it. That's not efficient, right? So you need to document all those low impact tasks. You need to have them all set. So you can just give somebody and say, this is how you do it and refer to me if you need you know, anything, but they need to be self-sufficient. So. Awesome. Awesome. Um, you... Let's just fast forward a little bit. You're in, you're in the future. You're 80 years of age. You've had incredible life. You're sitting with your grandkids. And you look back and you reflect back on one failure in your life. And maybe you've already had it. Maybe it's to come in the future. But given what you know today and what could happen in the future and given your experience, what's the number one failure that you've, you've had in your life or, or, or may potentially have? And what did you learn from that failure that you're going to bestow upon your children or your grandchildren to, to go off and be successful? Man, I've had a lot of failures. That's really hard. <laughs> uh, and two, like we're talking like epic proportion failures. You know, a lot of lawsuits almost took down our whole entire company because of stupid contractual things that I should have known better and and, and done. Um, I, I think the failure isn't as important as what you do after. Mm -hmm. So I guess I would probably use my paralysis, even though it wasn't a failure, but or the lawsuit, I guess either one. Just the point is not getting up and providing a solution. The lawsuit drove me to real estate, which created mass wealth. And it, it was simply a solution to a problem. And go, instead of running away or just keep doing the same thing to, to pivot and learn from it and move on. That's awesome. That's awesome, man. I think that it's incredible your, your, your journey so far. And I know you've got many more great years to come. Um, last question, big fella. Uh, where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to get in your sphere. They just want to find out a little bit more about all your awesome systems that you're creating. Where do they go? 
cash flow to freedom cash flow with the number two freedom.com that's also cash flow to freedom on youtube cash flow to freedom on um instagram or aj osborne that's my personal instagram i put up stuff like we're doing an expansion today and i do it and then the podcast where i talk about how to scale business you know just kind of documenting showing people what we're doing which i started when i was in the hospital because i was paralyzed didn't know what else to do so i started doing that and um then i got better and so i just we've kept doing it that's awesome that's awesome mate. well look i want to thank you for taking some time out of your day but a couple of things i just want to take uh give a summary of, of the conversation that we've had today for the takeaways, obviously the big one which stood out to me was the service versus or clients versus assets and how you transition from income to scale to wealth. And I think you broke that down extremely well for the listeners and understanding how you take a service-based business and turn it into an asset or an infrastructure. And that's why you chose to invest in real estate because it's inherently baked into the business because of the land that it is an asset and can continue to grow. Um, I also think the big takeaway for me is that you're always looking to systemize. And I think that is so important. You're never too big or too ugly to not know something until you're going to go figure it out. And that's one thing that came across in your, you know, your, your trials and tribulations. And, and I guess the last thing is you seem like a guy that has super, super positive energy around your mindset because you probably have been to some very, very dark places in your recovery. Uh, so is your family. And it's, it's some, it's somehow, driven you to be better and that is now just going to be, you know come back to you in leaps and bounds and, and it's not a spiritual thing or anything like that but i think it comes across as pe some people in your situation would have packed up shop and started saying well that's it for me and i'm, I'm going to fail but you haven't and you bounce back and bigger than better than ever and mate i, I just wish you all the best in the future did, did, did i leave anything thanks, out man. no that thanks man that was really nice i appreciate that that's, that's really good well look buddy thank you so much for uh, for jumping on the show enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up soon Awesome. You too. I appreciate it. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam packed with some incredible advice from AJ. Please get over to his website, which is cash2freedom.com. It's a podcast. It's AJ Osborne on Instagram. There's some just incredible stuff that he is doing with his company. And I think, you know, today was just only a small tip of the iceberg of what he's been through and what he's you know, going to go and do in the future. I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your real estate investment IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show. And we're going to do it all again next week. So be bold, be brave. And remember, go give life a crack.